And so we're going to be diving in this today. We know the condition of our world. We're aware of it. Self-afflicted loss, disease, destruction, death. We're, we're aware and we ask the question much like is asked in this chapter, where is Jesus in all this? And so we're going to ask that today. We're going to read God's word um, in John chapter 11, verses, this is going to be a lot. We're going to, going to, today's going to kind of be a survey of the Lazarus story. Next week, Kurt's going to really nail down and one of his favorite, really one of his favorite sections of scripture is Jesus prays to call Lazarus forth. forth. Spoiler alert, Jesus calls Lazarus forth. You know, he does come out of the grave. Um, but I want to ask you to stand with me, if you will, for John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. It's a lot to read, but we're going to, we're going to get through this. You've heard it. We're going to read it again together. Starting in verse one. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus had become ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, to whom, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the son of man might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and, are going, and, are, and we are going there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking a rest. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, and we might die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said "Jesus to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the, come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, when she came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And he said, take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account that the people standing around, that they might believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that word. We thank you for that story. We thank you for the truths that are housed in it. And as we continue to posture ourselves under the proclamation of truth this morning, from that which was sung to that which is spoken, that which was, has been, been able to be discovered in your word, um, God, may you just give us ears to hear and eyes to see who you are, see your glory on display, see your purpose, see your promise, and most importantly, to just see you. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for being a a good shepherd. Thank you for being the resurrection and the life. Thank you for being sympathetic high priest with us. Thank you for loving us and thank you for leading us to you, calling us home. In your holy and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks for story time with Andrew there with a lot of verses. Um, But this important chapter for us to be able to get all the way through. And I want to start off with the first slide we have up. It says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now we see that line at the very beginning. We kind of have three sections uh, this morning, really really four. We have the, the beginning before he gets to Bethany, the I am the resurrection and the life, the part where he weeps, and then the part where he calls Lazarus forth. And we're gonna kind of fly over that pretty quickly. Um, the first thing we see is this, in this saga is this story that Jesus is aware Something detrimental is going on in the life of one of his friends, really, really close friends, one whom he loves, and yet he shows up late. Now, we know, like, the larger sermon here is like, oh, Jesus is always on time. And I have that written there. Jesus is on time. He is never late. But I feel like we really need to take some time and process that a little bit to recognize that no matter like this seems, it seems specifically in this case with a guy that's in the tomb that he's a little late, but you could look back at every single one of Jesus' encounters so far in the gospel of John and say, had he been there earlier, these things might not have happened. Had he been there earlier, that man might not have been born blind from John chapter nine. Had he been there earlier, that man who's been laying by the pool since John chapter five, in John chapter five, he might have not had to spend 38 years of his life by the pool. Had he been there earlier, that woman who was isolated in her sin at a well in the middle of the day might not have had to take on that identity. Had he been there earlier, and there tends to be this recognition that had Jesus been there earlier, things might not have happened. But the truth is, because he encounters them when he does, because he encounters us when he does, we get to see that he's always on time. And that should be a comfort to those of us who suffer and to those of us who grieve, that he meets us in our suffering and our grief. It should also be a promise to those of us who dream, to those of us who hope, that to have a confidence that, that we shouldn't worry or stir over what the future holds. Even if we excitedly are look, looking forward to our future, Jesus is gonna be right on time. Lazarus, if he could do it all over again, I think would choose this scenario. 
the man at the temple who was given sight, I think he would choose this scenario. The woman at the well, I think she would choose this scenario because she didn't just get an identity. He didn't just get sight. Lazarus didn't just get life. Every single one of those people got Jesus. And that's the point. Sight without Jesus is far worse than blind with Jesus. Death with Jesus is far better than life without Jesus. You know, like, that's the point, is to get Jesus, and he's always on time. I use this sometimes when, we, when I lead mission trips. Uh, oftentimes, I've been to, to Honduras, which we're going this summer. If you're interested in going to Honduras, please see me or see um, Ross or Brooke, who we mentioned earlier, as they're going to be leading that team going down. But I, I do this. We'll get to the airport, and everybody, like, maybe the airport that we're leaving from, so Lexington in this case, everybody will be kind of anxious and worked up about, you know, the, the, the transitions or how we get over to our flight at the at Houston or Miami or, or wherever it is, or Atlanta, um, our passports, filling out the little forms, all those things we worry about weather and if the flights are gonna come in on the same time. And I usually just start the day with a prayer that's like, hey, we're just gonna view that whatever happens in this travel and on this trip is happening on purpose and we're just gonna trust the Lord. And that seems like a very mission trippy thing to do. That seems like a very mission trip like theme of we're just gonna trust that everything that happens on this trip or in this journey happens on purpose and we're gonna celebrate what God has in store for us. But does that belong only on a mission trip? Now that belongs in everyday life. That as we experience life and as life experiences us, as things sometimes happen outside of our plans, outside of our predictions, outside of even our hopes, sometimes in line with even our fears, it doesn't mean that they're absent of purpose and they're absent of the presence of God. And so Jesus leads us to recognize the purpose even in the midst of of our suffering or our trial, and I didn't say this on the screen, but would add, or even our circumstance. When God allows pain, he does, doesn't mean that his love became weaker. When pain happens to us, it doesn't mean that Jesus's love became weaker, but it actually means that, he, that in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that loss, that there is still a purpose and, that pur and we will not determine the strength of God by what happens to us. We'll determine the strength of God by how he responds to us in our affliction and in our pain and in our circumstance. And then the last thing we see here, our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep, but I must go and wake him, awaken him. Is he said he was gonna do this? If you've followed along with Jesus up to this point, this is not a shock. In John chapter five, in fact, and we preached on this, it uh, seems like many moons ago at this point that we were in John chapter five, but he says in verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And it's gonna be a moment where he intervenes into the natural process of life and death in the example of Lazarus. The thing we see here, he said he would do this, is we can trust Jesus to be true to his word. We can always trust Jesus to be true to his word. The next one we see as he moves on into, as we move on in the story, we see he moves into a, a moment with his sister and it, the, the heading will say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And it starts off with this question, Lord, or this statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not have died. Now, if you know anything about the personalities of Mary and Martha, you see it's not ironic that Martha's the one to like 
already be out and about and be practical and meet Jesus like before he even comes into the city. Like this is the same sibling set that there's a, a moment um, in, in one of the other gospel accounts where Jesus is over at their house, this family that he loves so dearly. And Martha is like running around, getting things in order, making sure everything is taken care of, doing all this work of busyness. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha gets upset. I heard a, a one pastor say to Martha, like has this moment of pure dysfunction. So there's Jesus, there's Mary. And she walks in the room and she's like, would you tell my sister to help me out? Like, I don't know if you've ever done that to a sibling where it's like you could just talk to them, but instead you talk to the boss in the room about them. We call that passive aggressive, you know? So for those of you that just related with that, um, Martha is a passive aggressive, busy body. That's who she is. And so it's not ironic that Jesus meets her outside the city as she is probably already in total fix-it mode of dealing with her brother's death. She meets him out there, and it might come across that this is like a, a, a frustration with Jesus. I really think it's more of, a, of a, a recognition of who he is. She said, had you been here? Had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. Like that might seem like a complaint because we know the power of Jesus, but if you think about it in the context, Martha is expressing a deep, deep, deep faith and belief that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is. And she goes and seeks him and meets him and, and almost with the expectation of, I know you're capable. And look how he responds to her. He responds to her in truth. His response back is, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I have written under that, that question. The reality in this moment is that Mary or Martha and Lazarus both equally need Jesus. Now, I wrote out in my notes here that it seems ironic if we were to really place ourselves in the story. Like in the moment, we don't know the end yet. Like we're one of the, the people that are at Bethany, like at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that Jesus is gonna raise himself from the dead. I mean, we can hope in the prophecies or we might have seen his works on display, but we don't know. And we might use a past tense recognition of Jesus. Lazarus needed you, Jesus. Lazarus needed with a suffix ed on the end of that, of that verb to need, right? Are you with me? Lazarus needed Jesus. When in reality, we know from our vantage point at the end of the story that Lazarus, even in his dead state, still needs like active present tense Jesus. In the moment, it would have been easy to say, Lazarus needed you, Jesus. Lazarus needed you. Now, my, my recognition of that draws me to some moment of confession, a moment of self-evaluation. How many scenarios in my life do I think I serve a past tense God that I missed out on? that that thing happened and it's irredeemable in the present. That problem already occurred. I've already had to move on and turn into fix-it mode. I've already had to realign myself, retraject -tra myself, all these different things. And I might even have the complaint, sometimes even in like super holy spiritual prayer of, Jesus, I needed you. No, friends, we, it's not past tense. It's present tense and future tense. You currently need and you will need Jesus. And what you think might be irredeemable or unfixable 
he still has power to speak into. Let's not be like like Mary saying, or Martha saying, had you been here, that past tense recognition, he wouldn't need you now. He needed you when he was sick. He needed you then. Let's not be past tense followers of Christ. Let's be present tense followers of Christ and understanding that what we need from him, he is willing to supply and he can even do so today for things that we feel like are not redeemable or not restorable or not renewable from our past. I had to go to a workshop this week um, on how to address the topic of abuse in church life. If you know anything about um, our, we are, for those of you that don't know, we are a Southern Baptist church. And if you know anything about the history of our denomination, Something came out earlier this year that was really, really, really unfortunate and really, really ugly about the number of people that have been abused physically, verbally, sexually in our denominational history. Uh, Houston Chronicle did a report on it. You can Google it. You can find, find all that stuff if you like. And so there's a, a real response to like make sure that we are treating that with um, the, the appropriate amount of, of recognition and the appropriate amount of healing and restoration and, and really repair. And then going forward, that those things not happen again in many of our churches. I don't think we have that history at this specific church. But I know that there are people in this room that have events that have taken place in their past that weren't your fault. You didn't ask for them. You didn't look for them. You didn't seek them. That might have found you. And you might have a tendency to look at the Lord and say, I needed you then. I needed you when, you, when I was six. I needed you when family member was on the prowl. I needed you when the guy that I thought I could trust was taking advantage of me. I needed you then. And I want you to hear today the voice of the Lord say, no, 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 I'm capable of fixing both your past, your present, and your future. Be home with me today. I want you to be open to that today. I hope that you would be open to that today. We don't serve a past tense God. We serve a present, past, present, and future tense God. And then this story with Martha becomes a reminder that we can trust Jesus when it's difficult. We can trust him. If, if we look at Psalm 119 and we say, how do we know that we can, we can trust Jesus? This is a little aside here in, in the Psalms. Um, I mentioned we're going to be talking through John 11 for this week and next week. Kurt's going to finish us out. And then we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John for the summer. And we're going to actually be invited into the Psalms together. And uh, Kurt and a squad of people are actually writing music to the Psalms that we're going to be doing. So that hopefully that's something that you can have and remember and memorize Scripture and abide in Scripture in. And we hope that, I mean, let's dream big here. At the end of 25 or 30 years of spending the summers in the Psalms, we just cover all 150 of them. That would be great. You know, like we'll just knock that out. Then you can have just tons. We won't even use CDs then, but whatever we'll use, we'll have tons of them um, streaming off your like wrist. Who knows? You know, we actually already do that with the Apple Watch, you know. Um, You'll be able to have those things. But, But we're reminded when I say we can trust Jesus when it's difficult, we're reminded of the psalmist in 119, he says, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your word had not been my delight, if who you are, if the truth of you, Jesus, had not been my delight, I would have perished 
in my affliction. No doubt that it is easy, it is easy to sometimes doubt Jesus' truth. We're not the only ones that do that. In fact, if you were to read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's just right before, like, he's risen from the grave, he encounters them face to face, and it says that while some stood in worship, these are his disciples, while some stood in worship, others doubted. Shoot, one disciple literally has the adjective in front of his name that he is a doubter. Thomas, he's actually in this in this passage of scripture, that he is a, a doubter when it comes to the things of Christ. It's easy to doubt Jesus' truth, but I want you to know, I want you to know that if your doubt becomes your delight, you will perish in your affliction. But if, you, if your circumstance becomes your delight, if your fix-it capability becomes your delight, you might perish in your affliction. But if his word is your delight, you will not perish in your affliction. How many times when stuff hits the fan in our life is our knee-jerk reaction to put our head down, to grit our teeth, and to push through and get to the next rest moment or get to the next renewal moment instead of stopping and asking Jesus that by this power of his spirit we might overcome? How often do we try to push through the things in our life by our own flesh and we wonder why it feels like affliction. If you've not been delighting in his word, then perishing in your affliction or living in your affliction makes perfect sense. We go on to the next little bit. Jesus wept. We see the exact same question asked. I don't know if you noticed that. This was my revelation this week. I was talking to, to Kurt and Larry David actually about it through the week, I, I had never noticed that both siblings asked literally the exact same question word for word in both the English and in the original language. The exact same question. And yet his answer is in immeasurably different to both of the questions. So the first time he says to Martha, he like hits her with truth. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm telling you, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe? And then with Mary, Lord, you'd have been here. My brother would not have died. What does he do? He responds with tears. He responds with tears. When Jesus, see, we see this really start off in, in verse 33. Um, I don't know if your Bible has a footnote in it or not, or your app has a footnote, but it says, when he saw her weeping and those who had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries and watched some stuff on this this week or listened to some sermons and takes on this this week. And, and I have heard almost every single um, resource talk about the translation of this moment, that he was deeply moved. And really how timid of a translation that is. Because it's not that he was just like, oh, that seems to have the effect of compassion. When the word there in verse 33, um, in the Greek, doesn't mean deeply moved. It means enraged. You might even have a footnote in your Bible that says indignant. For those of us in the room that are familiar with our Kentucky understanding, it means the flaring of a horse's nostrils. If you've seen a horse get fired up. So maybe uh, Bode, Bode Express yesterday, as he like threw his jockey off in the Preakness. For those of you that haven't seen that, um, 
There was one horse running, jockeyless, you know, so uh, he, he lost him along the way. Like the flaring of a horse's nose, like, like as they're getting ready, like even just in my imagination, like beady eyes, like ready to run through a fence or to, to, to run over what's in front of them. That's the emotion that Jesus is met with. And then Tarasso, the word right after that, um, that he is deeply moved and in his spirit greatly troubled means that he is stirred up. It's the exact same phrase that the, the author John uses to talk about the water in John chapter five in the pool of Bethesda, that it is stirred up, that it is provoked, um, that it is moved. And, and so you see Jesus be super emotionally charged at Mary and all this group of people experiencing loss and weeping. And then you have to ask, well, what is this emotion that Jesus is feeling. Now there's a million different takes on this. If you've heard this scripture preached five times, you might've heard five different um, emotions that pastors or, or commentators or scholars think that he felt. And so I don't wanna even try to say like, this is the right one. I'm gonna like lean on uh, some pastors that I've heard this week be like, hey, I'm not trying to be dogmatic with this. I'm just trying to look into the text and to see what's going on and to see what I think it could be. And as I watch it, as I look at it, I don't think he's necessarily mad at, you know, or, or, or frustrated um, that he didn't get his way. Clearly, that's not it, right? Like Lazarus died, he didn't want Lazarus to die, and Jesus is wringing his hands over it, angry. I don't think that's it. But I think it's the recognition, so take this as you will, that everything about the nature of Christ opposes death. Everything about it like every step that he takes, every breath that he breathes, it in its nature is the opposition to death because death is the byproduct of sin. And so there is something about death that he is absolutely an enemy against and he absolutely opposes. And what he's observing as the God-man through human eyes is the ripple effects of death on this little community, on his disciples, on his friends, on their family. He's seeing, from, he's seeing the question from Mary, the question from Martha. He's seeing the, the people that have shown up just to be professional mourners. He's seeing doubt. And again, like you gotta keep in mind, like yes, it's human eyes, but it's divine God nature. He's able to even see the doubts. He's able to see the unbelief. He's able to see the fix-it mode. He's able to see everything going on. He's able to see the places where they don't think he showed up at just the right time. And I think the combination of all those, we get a little insight into the character of God. Like he's not mad at Mary. He's not mad at the mourners. He's not mad at Martha. He's certainly not mad at Lazarus. But I think that the very nature of Christ is in opposition to that which is death. And he is almost in a way that would be like, hey, death, I'm here, I'm coming, and your day is gonna soon be over, feeling like a conqueror over it, expressing an emotion toward it that we're also invited to not just observe, but to enjoy and to, in fact, relish in his victory over death as people that follow him. I think that that's the thing that, that, that he really, really feels about. And if you've ever, you might say, well, I don't know if, if I fully understand that. I guarantee you have felt this too. Just yesterday, I was on the golf course and I was at the driving range 
and the young man that was hitting range balls, his swing instructor behind him, and I had the privilege of being this young man's golf coach a couple years ago, the three of us were all having a conversation about people that we either currently are in a relationship with or people that we once were in a relationship with that are either fighting a battle or have lost a battle to cancer. So the young man's dad had passed away a couple years ago, my brother-in-law recently, and the guy I'm talking to is talking about a leader in one of our community institutions that has a brain tumor. And all three of us look at each other at one point and we all realize that this cancer thing stinks. It's no fun and it's hard and it's hard to swallow and it's hard to live with. And in that moment where I think to myself, I just hate cancer. I think I'm channeling like one millionth or billionth of what Jesus felt in response to being confronted with death and its ripple effect. And even its competition, I wanna be clear with this, even its competition for glory. Like, do you know how, like what he desires when he is glorified, when his glory is on display, the ripple effects of glory to, to other people, to other places, to the way we live our everyday life? Like that's the ideal scenario, right? Like God high and lifted up, glorified and the ripple effects of, of glory. We've heard some people say before that our satisfaction in him is his glorification in us or, or his glor- our, our glorification of him is his satisfaction in us. And, and we start to see that ripple out into our life. I think the only thing that really mimics from the inverse of what the ripple effect of glory is, is the ripple effect of tragedy and death. If you've never seen it, if you've not seen it hit a family and then it just is like a domino effect chain reaction or hit a community or, or, or hit someone's life. And I think that, that it's not ironic that the enemy uses grief and loss to mimic, like undermine the glory of God and the exact same ripple effect that he would want his enthronement to have on our life. I think that Jesus opposes it. And then we see that he cries. Now, there's something significant going on here as well. You might think, and maybe it's true, that his weeping is the physical expression of this deep, intense emotion that he's feeling. And maybe it is. But it's ironic it is if that's the words that they use. Um, The words used for Mary and uh, all of the Jews that are weeping with her is the Greek word kleo, and it means to mourn, to lament. The word for Jesus is is the word dakru, and it literally just means cry. So why would the author use two different words within the same two sentences, talking about weeping, talking about mourning, and talking about lamenting? Here's why I think. Kaleo is a human feeling loss. Jesus' interaction with Lazarus had no feeling of loss. He had a loss, Lazarus. Lazarus was right where he needed to be. In fact, in about 10 minutes, we're gonna see that. Lazarus was exactly where he needed to be and he certainly was not out of reach of the Lord. He wasn't at loss. Jesus wasn't mourning because what would he have to mourn? He was completely in control the entire time, but Jesus was crying. And I think the purpose of that is that John, the author, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, paints the picture that he wants us to specifically recognize Jesus is shedding tears. Do you wanna know why? Because that same God sheds them with you. And that same God meets you and he might not feel the same thing you feel, 
Because he's God and he's in control and he's sovereign and he sees the big picture. He sees the 100% when we can only see the 10%. He is both in the already and in the not yet. And we're only in the not yet until we're in the where we're, where we're headed. He's in both places. He's not bookended by time. He's not limited by anything. But he does stop and cry when you cry. And he does that. Because he's a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter four, we've talked about this numerous times because the Holy Spirit knows that we need a savior who is both truth perfectly and tears perfectly with us. That trusting Jesus is not believing in a fairy tale. Like if you're in here today as a little bit of a skeptic, first of all, welcome. I hope you're enjoying the time together minus the heat. I even have a sweat rag today. I feel like an old revivalist preacher, you know, like... (laughs) Um, but if you're a skeptic today, I want you to know that trusting in Jesus is not believing a fairy tale. It's not um, believing this like statuesque stone, you know, ethereal power. Trusting in Jesus is trusting a person. It's trusting a living, breathing person that was both fully God and fully man and in a resurrected state sits on the throne the right hand of the Father, reigning over all creation, reigning over its finality and its completion. And he is a person that is the resurrection and the life. He is also a person that cries when you cry. In fact, there's scriptural evidence in multiple places through the Old Testament that Jesus is in a habit of blessing a tear-filled ministry. Nehemiah, his own, David, a lot of the kings that wept and returned to the Lord through the saga of the Old Testament, that he blesses a tear-filled ministry. And the truth is that in Christ, we have the confidence that he will wipe away every tear, even if we also have the prerequisite promise that that infers and implies that every single one of us will have cried them. He's a God that cries them with us. Oh, the relief that we will feel when they're gone. And then as we conclude, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Verse 38, you see this word show up again of the horse snort or the horse flaring nostril, this intense love on display. Jesus goes to the tomb and it's the exact same emotion again. He's moved from emotion to tears to emotion again. And then he calls Lazarus forth. I would actually offer you that he called Lazarus home. Now you might be tempted to believe that home for Lazarus was his physical address in Bethany. Or home for Lazarus was a return to his everyday life and his family, his sisters, and, and all the things that he was doing before. Uh, or you might be tempted to believe that, return, that coming home was a return to normal health. But I want you to see today that when Jesus called Lazarus home, it was to be with him. Lazarus was not called just to healing He was healed, but he was called to Jesus. And the good news is that he never stopped being at home with his Savior. That verse 26 became true. Those that believe in him shall never die. Do you believe this? For us as believers, if we've had loved ones that are followers of Jesus that have passed away, 1 Thessalonians 4 says we don't need to grieve like those that don't have a hope. We don't have to. We have a hope in Christ, but the imperative for that 
is that we invite other people to the same hope we have. Friends, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in the surrounding counties of Lexington and Fayette itself, there's about 600,000 people. Um, been an independent research firm over the past couple of years that has been doing some research through sample populations and has been able to project that best estimate is out of 600 people that call Central Kentucky home, 441,000 of them don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means when they pass, we don't grieve like one without, with a hope because they wouldn't have one. That's a hard thing to say in our cultural moment. But we're gonna skip ahead in a few chapters and see Jesus say that he's the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. If we believe that declaratively about our Savior, then may we believe that relationally about those that we live among every single day and put a dent for the glory of God by inviting other people into the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that we have, not just for this world, but the hope that we have for heaven. And we recognize that heaven is our home. It will feel like home. I don't know if y'all get weirded out thinking about heaven. Like, what are we gonna do for, you know, ever? <laughs> like, are we just gonna get bored? Are we gonna get, you know, is it gonna be like the Passion Conference 365, 24, seven, you know, like, this is just gonna be Chris Tomlin up there dancing around and Jesus like sitting above him being like, good job. You know, like, I don't know if your mind goes, but, but here's what I've been learning about heaven recently. It's that it will feel like home more than anything you've ever felt. You were created for there. Friday night, I got to see Kurt and uh, Stephen McWhorter lead worship together in Louisville. And Stephen challenged us. He's done this here before about lifting our arms and he said, if that feels awkward for you, like I need you to know, like you were created for that posture, to be in surrender and adoration and praise of the one that made you. Now I always get some moment where my shoulders get tired and I feel like I'm being judged as my hands slip down and then I'm like, I just turn into this, you know? <laughs> poor shoulder, I need to go to the gym, I need to work my shoulders out some more, you know? But there's gonna be a moment where our shoulders don't get tired anymore. Like there's gonna be a moment where our lungs don't fail us from praising the name of our Savior. And, the, and even you might say like, yeah, Andrew, you're not making it feel any less weird. Does your home have like a smell to it that just like you know it? And the way you know it is when you were a kid and you used to go to somebody else's house, you would smell their house's smell and be like, oh, this doesn't smell like my house. This, this towel doesn't smell like my mama's towel. Like this laundry or this shirt that I'm wearing of theirs doesn't smell like what's happened at my house. Or you have favorite foods at home. I mean, even everybody I know's grandma fixes the best of that thing, right? You know, like whatever it is, the best dessert, the best casserole, the best whatever. Everybody's grandma has the best version of that. Like there are some things that you recognize as your home that, that feels so natural and so normal. I'm telling you, friends, heaven's gonna be that times a billion. It's gonna be the most natural feel of home for your soul that you could possibly imagine because that's exactly how you were created. And to believe anything else is in some way to indict God that he doesn't know what restoration looks like. He does. You'd be more at home with Jesus than anyone on, on earth and anywhere on earth. So let's not live spiritually homeless. Let's live like we have a hope and let's live like we're invited home. As we close out, Jesus, we recognize that Jesus both weeps with us in our grief, but he also speaks truth to us he also speaks truth to us. He has provided for us a hope. 
not just through, not just for suffering, but through suffering, his suffering. He's provided for us a hope through his suffering on a cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so this last little slide that we have up coming up is gonna be how we conclude. There's four questions to find you today. How does God's truth find you today? Are you, if you're Martha, you're in fix-it mode, how does God's truth find you today? Or, or maybe and or, how do God's tears join you today? What is Jesus crying alongside you? What is he concerned for alongside you? How is the resurrection a hope for you today? How do we see Jesus on a cross and raise the new life and can put our hope in that and our promise be secure both eternally and even temporally? And if we recognize that the invitation to heaven is not some just fire insurance promise of everlasting life, but it's an invitation home. It's that verse 26, that he who believes will never die. Do you believe this? How might you come home to Jesus today? And maybe that's for the first time that you say, I want to, I want to recognize that spending life with Jesus is better than spending it with any other relationship or in any other place. Maybe that's to say that today for the first time as Kurt prayed earlier. Or maybe it's just as a form of repentance of saying, I wanna be reminded the realities of heaven. I wanna be reminded that it feels like home. I wanna be reminded of Colossians 3 to fix my thoughts on the things above and live tomorrow in my two square feet, as we mentioned earlier, on earth, in my two square feet as it is in heaven. Maybe it's one of those things. But regardless, I want you to see that the answer to all of these questions is someplace that Jesus would love to be in front of you and be calling you toward. Truth to meet you. Tears to join you. Resurrection to be a hope for you. And home to be an identity for you to live in. So we go to the table. You're invited to take, eat, and remember his life, death, and resurrection. And take, eat, and participate in what it means to be the kingdom of God here on earth as, as it is in heaven.